From the McGrath Institute for Church Life and OSV Podcast, this is Church Life Today. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. What is the belief of ordinary Catholics around the Eucharist? That is a harder question to answer than it might at first seem. You could put forward two options and ask a respondent if they believe this or that. But it is not easy to phrase those options correctly, nor is it easy to ensure that your respondent understands what you are trying to ask. Belief in the Eucharist is not easy, and neither is asking about it. A new study commissioned by the McGrath Institute for Church Life and conducted by CARA at Georgetown University attempts to get closer to the real Eucharistic beliefs of ordinary Catholics. More precision was put into the questions and possible answers, an opportunity was given for open-ended responses, and sustained reflection on all the responses yielded some more textured findings than previous national studies produced. Today, I talk with my colleague, Dr. Tim O'Malley, about this new study, its findings, and their significance for renewing Eucharistic belief in the Church. Tim published an article on this study in the Church Life Journal under the title, The Theological Foundations of Eucharistic Beliefs, a New National Study. Tim, welcome back to the show. Oh, it is good to be here. (laughs) So, Tim, this 2019 study from the Pew Center produced data showing that roughly 7 out of 10 Catholics believe that the bread and wine at Mass are merely symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. In the language of the study, most Catholics don't believe the bread and wine are, quote, actually the body and blood of Jesus. Now, that study not only got a lot of attention, it also had an impact as it is one of the reasons evoked for launching the National Eucharistic Revival. So, I want to start by asking you, what did you find problematic in the setup of that 2019 Pew study? Yeah, so I was involved in the executive committee, and one of the first things we said we would do is do a more, a better version of that study. Um, the first critiques actually emerged from Dr. Mark Gray from Kara himself. Uh, he wrote a blog post almost right after it was out, uh, and I had read it and noticed, you know, you, you had the typical problems with it. It didn't easily segment, like, Catholics who go to Mass a lot, Catholics mm. who don't go to Mass. It used improper theological language. So in principle, you could have answered either, right, that the bread and wine are symbols of Christ, which they are, um, and that it is the body and blood of Christ, or actually becomes in some ways. You could have chosen either option. There wasn't the sort of clarity because the bread and wine are symbols but they're not mere symbols. Mm-hmm. They are the body and blood of Christ, but as bread and wine, they function symbolically too. So there was a lot of lack of clarity in the study itself, which isn't surprising. It wasn't doing a full study of Eucharistic belief. Um, and we felt we could do a better job if we worked with Kara and designed something that could measure personal belief, articulation of belief in, in a way that the Pew just couldn't. And in terms of what Pew asked, so there's the the part about asking if these are merely symbols, and it's probably the merely part that could be uh, problematic. I don't even know if they asked merely. Or they didn't just, actually include merely. They just said symbols. Mm-hmm, okay, correct. so it leaves it ambiguous there. But then the other side of that where it says, or uh, do the bread and wine actually become the body and blood? I think it did use the word actually. It did, right? yes. So what's the issue with the word actually there? 
Yeah, I mean, I know what they're doing. They're trying to draw a fairly big distinction between symbol and actually. Mm-hmm. Of course, the dilemma is that people who read that may, in fact, think about actually as the word physically, right? Mm-hmm. Physically become, you know, I actually am in your presence right now. And uh, this is how the interpretation could have been had. And when you only have two choices, you might look at the one and say, well, it's not that, so it's got to be the other. And so it's not that the Pew study, for example, gets everything wrong or is way off base relative to articulation of Eucharistic belief. It's just that you can't come to the conclusion from the study that seven out of 10 Catholics don't believe, that the the data is not supported in the study itself. Okay, so in this study that then was commissioned uh, through our institute, the McGrath Institute, that you helped to lead this, um, and in association with Dr. Mark Gray at CARA, how did you seek to kind of correct for what you found in the Pew study? Like, what were some of the approaches in asking questions for these respondents? Yeah, we wanted to use as exact language as possible without necessarily giving away the doctrine, right? So there was a lot of wrestling over, you know, the right words to use. Um, mere symbol, in fact, we did use, right? Mm-hmm. Because we wanted people to sort of understand it is a mere symbol. If they said that, that's distinct. I think the real genius of the study was the fill in the blank. So people got to describe their own Eucharistic beliefs. And the key for this is there are people who, for example, might say it's a symbol, but then they might actually say that, you know, when they encounter the Lord, they, they, you know, the Eucharist, they meet our Lord. And so what you're really seeing, it, it is a, a gap of articulation, right? That's the big thing is that it's an articulation gap. And there are people who believe who can't articulate. There are people who definitely don't believe (laughs) and (laughs) they don't go to mass, right? I mean, so we also notice that people who go to mass tend to believe. I'm not surprised by this. You know, they found close to 90% of Catholics who go to weekly mass have a high belief in real presence. And this makes sense because that's why they're going. So Mm. I think it allowed for greater segmentation of particular beliefs and what kind of works, right? Um, What works better than than not is people going to mass and people going through RCIA. These Mm -hmm. are the things that work. Mm. This really interesting point uh, that came out through this study that you were commenting on there that uh, oftentimes, or sometimes, there's the the trouble with articulation of the doctrine, articulation of you could say the right belief of the church as taught, and yet when you ask people, uh, so you know, when you go to mass and you receive the Eucharist, what what are you receiving? Or you ask people, I think as it was stated perhaps in the study, like after the consecration, what takes place or what is there? And they say something like, oh, the body and blood of Jesus, or who do you receive? I receive Jesus. Like in the very sort of simple language of the encounter of faith. They actually are testifying to a belief in real presence. And yet, as you were stating, like the articulation of the actual doctrine is lagging. Uh, You, in the essay that you wrote on this, talked about the distinction between real assent and notional assent appealing to John Henry Newman's categories. Can you kind of put that together with uh, these findings a little bit? Yeah, I think if you measure Catholics' understanding of any particular doctrine, your average Catholic in the pews— you are probably going to find that most Catholics in the pews don't have a notional belief in most doctrines, right? <laughs> right. Like the doctrine of the Trinity, um, certainly Christology. Mm-hmm. You would not find much about eschatology 
and Eucharistic thought is low, right? People have generally not known the particulars of Catholic belief. I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying it's they, true right. historically. And so I think, you know, when you when you ask a Catholic, for example, who goes to weekly mass and who regularly adores the Eucharist, they may, for example, be able to articulate precisely their belief. They also may not. Mm-hmm. And they're living it out, right? Because they're kneeling and they're going to mass and they're listening to this really mediocre homily and this terrible music and they're remaining present to receive the Lord. And while certainly I have no doubt that there are people who just don't get the Eucharist at all, you know, one of my fears throughout the whole revival uh, has been, you know, when we start to not appreciate the mundane faith of the people of God who are showing up, Mm. right? And we start saying, listen, even among us, there are people who don't believe. And uh, I feel like that that raises, you you know, you're not paying attention to the, the lived faith to the sense of faith of the people of God who are there showing up, participating in the life of the parish, even when it's not easy, they must believe something. Mm. And so I think I have I, what I appreciated about the Kara study, it was a preferential option for that sometimes implicit pre-articulate faith mm. that uh, nonetheless is real. And by the way, part of the job is to move it to articulation. But, yeah. um, but you can't then say that they don't believe that they can't articulate is a different thing. Aha. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. My guest is Tim O'Malley, Director of Education in the McGrath Institute for Church Life, where he is also Academic Director of the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy. We're discussing the results and significance of a new survey of the Eucharistic beliefs of adults, Catholics in the United States. So on this sort of ground of articulation of belief and sometimes matching on with uh, sort of the real belief or lack of real belief in the Eucharistic presence or not. I just wanted to share for people who haven't seen this study yet, and we hope, we hope you'll take a look, um, share some of the results. So 48% of people uh, surveyed among adult Catholics don't know what the church teaches about the real presence and don't believe in the real presence. So they don't know. And in these open-ended responses, it was sort of confirmed they don't believe in the real presence. so that's 48%, 38% know what the church teaches and believe in it, right? So 38% can articulate in some way, they accept it, and they believe in it. But then you have this other 14%, which is what we were talking about here. 9% know what the church teaches and don't believe it. So there is the sort of catechetical understanding they can articulate. They say the church says this, I just it, it's not happening. Yeah, I don't some believe of the it. open response questions for that one were really interesting. Really salty. And, I read those. Uh, yeah, yeah, salty. Yeah, they're salty. But then in this, at least in the study, there were 5% who believe in the real presence but don't know what the church teaches. So it was coming out uh, more in their open-ended responses, a sort of maybe a simpler statement than the precise doctrinal um, articulation. So this isn't, and you're not saying this at all, and the, the study isn't saying this, this isn't not a matter of catechesis and articulation, but it's not reducible to that. So let's talk about how this can become a matter or the urgency around catechesis here to grow in an understanding, to grow uh, perhaps even in the articulation. What do you? What would you say is the urgency of that, but maybe also the limits of that? Yeah, I mean, I actually think the most urgent dimension is something we couldn't get to in the study, which yep. is... I think if you actually talk to most Catholics and try to figure out if they know that the Mass is a sacrifice and that they are to participate in that sacrifice, 
you would find numbers much lower than uh, Mm. 48%, 50%. You would find almost negligible numbers of Catholics who recognize that they are to offer the sacrifice of their lives in light of the sacrifice of Christ upon the altar. Mm. And so, you know, that Eucharistic belief, I think, has been fundamentally not focused on exclusively, right, in the sort of data or reporting. It is interesting. It is a huge concern of the Eucharistic revival, is they actually do want to uphold sacrifice. And it was in the bishop's own document on the Eucharist, uh, Eucharistic belief um, that they composed uh, in light of not only the Pew study, but in light of Catholic polarization and disagreement with one another. It was a very good document on the Eucharist and sacrifices underemphasized. So pastorally, I think we really need a holistic sense of Eucharistic formation, right? So it's sacrifice, it's presence, it's communion. I think that's that that emerges out of, I, I think, a really good, robust Eucharistic formation. You know, for presence itself, I mean, it's clear that, you know, f- there's a lot of people who who long in their lives for encounter. And in the Eucharist, it's a weird encounter. It's not a normal encounter. Um, (laughs) It's an encounter that is mediated through the signs of bread and wine, which, uh, but substantially, it's our Lord's presence. Um, You know, it's a weird encounter, but they long for that. They long to be in his presence. It's healing. And, And I think a lot of the catechetical work of the revival has been around that, the healing transformative dimensions of encounter. We're actually not finding a lot in the revival itself around precision of doctrinal articulation. Mm. Uh, That hasn't been sort of the prime motivation. It's there, Mm -hmm. uh, but it is this sort of encounter with Christ that then you want to offer the return gift of your life, you know, as a sacrifice of love. And so I think that kind of catechesis is essential. Mm. Um, I was surprised Catholic schools are really important in this. Mm. Um, you know, not a lot of people go to Catholic schools overall across the United States. But if you went to a Catholic school, you actually knew things about the Eucharist. Um, you were more likely than anything else. And of course, that um, is that certainly, you know, um, exists in relationship to other data that notes that Catholic schools don't have like a huge effect long term on faith, um, you know, staying around, affiliating. Uh, but it seems on this point, Catholic schools are really good at this. Mm. You've been traveling a lot, I know, over the last year or two, um, speaking on the Eucharist, this sort of Eucharistic revival, Eucharistic formation in parishes and elsewhere. What Have you seen in certain places this kind of encounter that you're talking about, uh, this kind of renewal of an encounter with the Lord in particular places? And if so, like, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think I was most moved by my trip to Salt Lake City. Uh, which is the Diocese of Salt Lake City, which is the whole state of Utah. Mm-hmm. And I was there for their Eucharistic Congress. And first of all, the bishop made it free. So it was free to everyone in the diocese. And people came from six hours away on buses wow. uh, to go to this Congress. It was probably 60% Hispanic uh, as far as participation goes. Uh, but it filled up this whole sort of giant convention hall. And you could just see the love and faith of the people for Christ's Eucharistic presence, but also the communion of belonging together, especially in a place where you're such a marginal part of the population. It Mm. was a different feel than any other event I went to. It wasn't about lights. It wasn't about speakers. It wasn't about... You were a speaker. I was. But it wasn't about you. It wasn't. It was actually (laughs) about the Lord, right? I mean, it was the speakers were actually... um, 
they were more of an afterthought. They they had a couple of morning sessions, but the center was mass and a Eucharistic procession. And mm. to see 10,000 Catholics in this convention hall in Utah sort of really drop to their knees and adore Christ was moving. And to see most of all how many people volunteered their time and energy to make this possible throughout the whole diocese. Mm. There were hundreds of volunteers who gave of themselves for this. And uh, just to see anywhere from like little kids to, um, you know, uh, Mexican grandmothers, uh, all sort of involved here. It, it is what the revival should be about. It's Mm. a communion of the church around the Lord instead of around ideology or bureaucracy or bad news, right? It was it, it was a vivifying element for the church in Utah, and certainly for me. Mm. When you think about how this might look on the parish level, I mean, certainly some of your own work, one of your books, Becoming Eucharistic People, is thinking about the, the sort of renewal of parish life as forming and being formed by Eucharistic people. What are some of your your hopes or aspirations or what you think we might want to see in our parishes in terms of this Eucharistic faith being renewed? I mean, one of the things about our Lord's presence in the Eucharist that should really haunt us in parishes is solidarity, right? That that because the Lord has dwelt with us in history, we ought to dwell in the world in history too. And I have a hope that through this Eucharistic encounter, which needs to be personal, it needs to be involve like your full being. It has to involve that kind of one-on-one encounter with Christ, you know, in community. But, um, you know, that there is a sense of, you know, we're responsible for the neighborhood, that the consequence of the Lord dwelling in this parish is that I'm responsible for the Lord's work in this area. And uh, if I am to adore Christ in the Eucharist, if I'm to do so, then I must welcome the hungry and the thirsty and those who are forgotten in my parish uh, for whatever reason. And I mean parish here by boundary, the neighborhood boundary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if Catholics can do this, I think we have a, we pick up an integral aspect of evangelization that some of these new movements, I think, forget about, right? They're, They're all in favor of the personal encounter and the transformation of life, but it's also a sort of cultural transformation. And I think parishes are unique engines for this because They actually reside in a place and they reside in a culture. You know, they have to organize themselves to do it. But I mean, to me, that's the end of the revival. New charisms, new opportunities for uh, devotion that leads to love, concrete love in the world. So that's what I'd like to see. Um, I think it's possible. Um, I think the good news is that there's actually a lot of Catholics who are committed to the Eucharist from the Charis study, and they're a great place to start. I Mm -hmm. mean, if you're 38% of, of... Catholics in the United States, if they are that committed to Eucharistic belief, that's not a bad place to commence. Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. Joining me is my colleague, Tim O'Malley. Our conversation is moving from a new survey on the Eucharistic beliefs of adult Catholics in the United States, commissioned by the McGrath Institute for Church Life in association with the CARA Center at Georgetown and Dr. Mark Gray. You were saying earlier, you know, one of the things that, you know, this study didn't ask about, but would be a really important question at some point is some question like, is the mass a sacrifice? Um, And you were postulating that, you know, the responses to that would probably be a lot lower um, in terms of what people said. But there's a, a huge point of connection, it seems, with what you were just talking about, the 
responsibility for this neighborhood. In other words, to be a Eucharistic people is to become Eucharistic people for others, like to take on the sacrifice that Christ has made for us to dwell with us in our concrete particularity with our needs and sufferings, uh, to become that for others, to actually extend his Eucharistic presence through our charity. What, I mean, this is such an open and big question, but um, in parish life today, what have been some of the major obstacles to actually becoming that kind of people? Yeah, I mean, it's privatized religiosity. I mean, the Eucharistic revival, I think, has gotten a sort of rap for being like, well, these are more like devout, uh, you know, Christians, lovers of the Lord who, you know, emerge from these evangelization movements. But I think it's a prophetic movement because it calls the church to recognize that our religious practice is not private. The Eucharist is not private. A Eucharistic revival is a public event. I mean, these processions, for example, the history of these processions are interesting. I mean, certainly there was triumphalism that happened in some of these processions, but the increase of processions, I think, is an invitation to say, like, American religious life as a private event is not sufficient Eucharistically, right? Uh, so I've known of, of some places in St. Louis that do a Eucharistic procession where they move from an African-American parish to a Hispanic parish to a shrine to a wealthy suburb. And it's sort of saying, like, listen, right, in a place where, like, these boundaries have been drawn— mm we're going to cross these boundaries, mm. right? And we actually can't cross them ourselves, right? It's the Lord who has to accompany and cross uh, with us so that that kind of degree of healing is possible. So, I mean, I think that kind of, the major obstacle to me is Americans don't think about their worship as anything more than individual self-fulfillment. Mm. And when you do that, you don't seek to renew your communities. You don't seek to leave your parishes. You go to brunch. Not against brunch. Um, <laughs> Very much in favor of brunch. Love a brunch. Uh, yeah. But that's what you do. You leave on Sunday and you run to brunch. And, you know, that is that is keeping us from the kind of cultural renewal that the church needs, you know, in communities throughout this country. Mm. It seemed that in the study, um, those who came into the Catholic Church as adults had a stronger belief in the Eucharist, uh, by and large, than those who came in as infants. Um, in some ways, there's a better understanding and then the acceptance of the belief and a commitment to that belief. But if we're thinking about raising children in the church and as Eucharistic people who receive our Lord and respond to the Lord in their lives, what do you think is important for forming and raising our children well for this Eucharistic belief? Yeah, I think for the kids, it starts with the body, right? It starts certainly with being immersion into the stories or, or narratives, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, kids will pick up that the Lord is there, but they pick up this most through the body, right? So I think if there's a dilemma in our parishes around Eucharistic belief, it is reverence, right? I, reverence of the, the Eucharistic presence of our Lord and how we kneel and how he is received, right? Um, there can be a kind of you know, if you pay attention to your average parish, how people approach to receive the Eucharist, you might not describe it always as the height of reverence. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I'm not condemning any particular person, but, you, you know, there's it's often frenetic and rushed and uh, there, there isn't really this sort of sense of embodiment. And I think kids lead with the body, right? They genuflect. They know how to hold their hands. Uh, you know, as they get older, then they ask questions and ask, well, why do we do that? And what is this about? And so I think for kids, it starts with material embodied practice. 
which then, you know, will, I think, grow into that notional ascent if the catechesis is decent. Mm -hmm. I, I think what tends to happen is you start with the notional thing and kids find it boring and they don't really understand it. And the catechist who's trying to explain transubstantiation gets it wrong or weird. And so it's not communicated, but they also have no lived experience of Eucharistic worship in a way where the question that would occur to them, well, who is the one who is there? They don't actually even have that question. Yeah. I mean, it is boring if you're just describing it without any kind of encounter. Baseball is boring if you're, I mean, some people think baseball is boring even when many, they're there are many people. Okay, so let's not use that. But even football, if you describe the the rules of football, we could probably have a greater audience here that will agree that that's somewhat exciting. Um, you just describe the rules without an experience of being at a game or playing it or anything like that. It's just, it's boring. It just is left behind. But once you maybe get into some of the nuances after the the experience of it and trying to understand what you saw and what you participated in, a little bit more interesting. And if you were to, let's say, explain why Notre Dame was so much better than USC in football terms recently. Very interesting to talk about. Yeah, I mean, that's the mystery of love. It is the mystery of love. I mean, this is our Lord bending down and just lighting up this world for us right yeah, before us. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow we got here. Yeah, so anyone listening from Los Angeles, we apologize. Sort of. Not that much. Not that much, yeah. I grew up there, so I apologize much less. So, all right, back to the Eucharist, I suppose, though we never left it. Um is there another step of this that you hope to be a part of in terms of uh, further study, further use of this data? Um, what might be next? Yeah, I mean, I think my hope. So, first of all, we did the the Eucharistic Revival Committee and the, the Bishop Cousins. They knew of this survey's results. They've known of it for a while. So, so this was not like a gotcha survey. Yeah, this was a chance all along to say this is what we're doing. This now provides some real strategic areas of focus for the revival, right? So adults who go through RSAA, it's working. Mm-hmm. So the question is, is how do you provide those experiences for other adults? Uh, you know, schools seem to work. Regular mass attendance works. So how do you actually get people to go to mass? These are uh, the kind of strategic pastoral, you know, pastoral responses that work. Yeah, you know, I would personally love to see a wider study of Eucharistic belief, precisely because it's a fraught topic after the council. There's just so many folks who argue that the whole church went, uh, fell apart, basically, because of the Reformed liturgy. Nobody loves the Mass. Irreverence is high. I'd like to actually know what happened, right? Mm. You know, what happened? What's general Eucharistic belief like? And, you know, I'm not a sociologist, so I think that this would be a much larger project worth anyone doing sociology of religion of taking on. You know, for me, uh, I think the bigger movement uh, sort of remains the consequences of this. And uh, I certainly would love to look at some of these communities that demonstrate higher levels of Eucharistic belief. If there's a way of analyzing other ages or their particular sort of uh, locations in the United States, can you look at some of these places and say like, well, what, what's happening with them? What's going right? And how could you, uh, you know, at least learn from them to figure out how to do this better in other places? Mm. Well, friends, if you're looking to find out more about this study, a great place to start is with the essay that Tim wrote in the Church Life Journal. We'll link that in the show notes so you can find it there. The study itself it comes under the title Eucharistic Beliefs, a National Survey of Adult Catholics. You can find it 
the McGrath Institute for Church Life or CARA at Georgetown University. Tim, thanks so much for this conversation. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. This has been a production of OSV Podcasts. To learn more, visit osvpodcasts.com.